But if you want to know what that story means today, you just witnessed it right there. That's what it is. And uh, bless God. Um, if God tugs at your heart any time today, and please don't do this out of obligation or anything like that, but if you just really feel God tugging at your heart today and saying, you know what, I want to throw my life into Jesus so that his life can, can be raised up in my life. Uh, at any time, you can just go to the back. Several people have made this choice already today and last night to do that. Don't let anything stand in the way. We've got tons of clothes, extra sets, um, and so you're not going to have to go home in, in, in soaking wet clothes or anything like that. But just, uh, if God does that, just, just be obedient today, okay? Um, we are going back to the Gospel of Mark, and I know some of you thought that we were in this Gospel for three years, but we weren't, okay? It was only one year. Um, but we saved this last chapter for today. And so let's go to Mark chapter 16. This is more than an exclamation point to Mark's gospel. If you don't have a Bible, you just need to raise your hand. We'd love to uh, get you one. And if you have a blue Bible like mine, this is found on page 722. We stand for the word of God. You can sit for my words. Let's stand. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And then as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who is crucified. He has risen. Wait a second. We'll, 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 we'll try that again, okay? Now, <laughs> this, listen, wait, wait, wait. I just want to say something. Some of you say, you know, I'm Dutch, and I don't show emotion or anything like that. Well, you know what? I see you at basketball and football games, okay? And Jesus risen means Jesus wins. So let's try this again. He is risen. Amen. Amen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. And trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is God's word. You can be seated. What is this text, a text that many of us have read many times, what does it mean? What does it mean for our world? Or let's get a little more personal, what, what, what does it mean for you? 
I want to start this morning with this. What day is it? Okay, according to the text, it says the first day of the week, or we'd call that Sunday. But is that all? See, it would be like if today were Christmas, and I asked you what day it was, and you said, well, it's Sunday. And if, Yes, it is Sunday, but, but what day is it? See, we need to place this event into God's calendar because God gave his people a calendar. And I don't know if you know this, but Easter isn't on the calendar. In fact, you're never going to find Easter, the word Easter, in the Bible. And I'm not that sad about that because I feel like Easter has become about bunny rabbits and Easter eggs. Okay? But this day... This first day of the week happens to fall on one of the major holidays instructed by God. And it's called the Feast of First Fruits. You can read about this in Leviticus 23, Numbers 28, Deuteronomy 16. But for the sake of time, rather than turning to those texts, let me just sum them up right now. Because here's God's instruction. It starts with this. On the 14th day... That could be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever day it falls on that particular day. But on the 14th day of the first month of every year, I want you to celebrate Passover. And Passover was their 4th of July. Because it's when they celebrated God liberating this whole nation from slavery in Egypt when they were spared death because of the blood of a lamb. Now, five days before Passover, God gave them a specific instruction. Does anybody know what that is? He said, I want each family to pick a lamb. And so that day was called Lamb Selection Day. So five days before Passover, they picked the lamb, and then on Passover, each family presents that lamb to the temple, and it's killed. Now, what's happening to Jesus on these days? Well, five days before Passover, on Lamb Selection Day, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And you ask, why on that day? Because he's saying, I am the Lamb, pick me. And then what happens to him five days later on Passover? Jesus is crucified Because he is the Lamb of God slain, sparing us of death. Now then the day after Passover, God instructed them to observe another week-long feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is the feast where you would put grain in the ground because it just came after the planting season And they would pray to God that God would provide a rich harvest for the coming year. So think about this. That next day now, being Saturday, when the whole nation is praying, God, give us life out of the earth, what's happening to Jesus? As every religious Jew is praying, God, bring life out of the earth, they're putting Jesus into the earth. God then instructed 
another feast called the Feast of First Fruits. This was a one-day feast that was to be celebrated the first day of the week following Passover. What day is it in our text? First day of the week following Passover? It's Feast of First Fruits. In fact, it's an incredibly rare thing for these three feasts to fall on three consecutive days like this. And what's more awesome for us this morning is that on first fruits, God instructed them to bring the beginning of their harvest to the temple, and all the people would bless God because the rest of the harvest was coming. What's happening to Jesus on first fruits? This is the day. Jesus comes up out of the earth. Because he is the first fruits to come out from the earth, the first fruits from the dead. And I think Jesus said it so well in John 12, verse 24. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now tell me all of this that I just laid out as coincidence. Now when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, I don't, I don't know what you're envisioning, but I want us to know this morning, this is more than a resuscitation. And what rises up from the earth is not just some ghost that's floating around. In fact, when you read the accounts of Jesus following the resurrection, I mean, I think these are some of the strangest stories because you realize several things about Jesus, the Jesus that's come up from out of the earth. He is someone who can be seen, he can be touched, he can be felt, he eats, he walks, he leaves footprints, and yet he isn't recognizable. He enters rooms through locked doors. He appears and he disappears because he's clearly living in a whole new dimension, but not as a bodiless person. In fact, he's more physical. He's more material, but not bound by it. And this is the risen, glorified Christ. Now, what's the significance of that for us today? Well, Paul speaks of this in that great chapter on resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is what Paul says. In fact, you might want to read that chapter today. But he says this. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So I want us to get this because it's awesome. What Paul is saying is this, that the risen Christ is only the beginning of this huge harvest that's going to come up out of the earth. In fact, he goes on and says this, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Jesus Christ all will be made alive, but each to his own turn Christ, the first fruits, then to when he comes to those who belong to him. Now, what I just read, whether 
you got that or not, is awesome. I mean, it's almost too good to be true. And here's what it means. It means that all the Christ followers who have died. Now let's think about those people right now because this hits home. Talking about grandparents. And for some of you, it's moms and dads. For some of you, it might even be a spouse. For some of you, it's a good friend. For some of you, it might be a son or a daughter. But it's not just for Christ followers who have died, but it's Christ followers like us who will die barring the return of Christ. Here's the awesome truth that Jesus risen as the first fruits from the dead is the promise that God is going to do in us exactly what he did in Jesus on Easter. Think about that. That there's going to be a moment in time in my life that what happened to Jesus on Easter is exactly what's going to happen to me and to you. In fact, in 1 John 3, verse 2, it says, when we see him, we will become like him. And I love what N.T. Wright has to say. He's thought a lot about the resurrection and has been this incredible apologist for the church in writing about the resurrection. But this is what he says. He says, I've often put it like this. If somebody you know has been very ill for a long time, you say things like, poor old so-and-so, he's just a shadow of his former self. He says, but the extraordinary truth in the New Testament is that if you are in Christ and you dwell by his spirit, you right now are just a shadow of your future self. And he goes on and says this. He says, there is a real you to which the present you corresponds as a photocopy corresponds to the glorious original. He says, you know there is a real you, which God is going to make, and it will be more physical and more real, not less. Is that awesome? In fact, I will even take this a little further. God is not going to trash our old body. He will create the new from out of the old. In fact, this is one of the main points of Easter. God doesn't just dispose of Jesus' body and give him a new one. No, Jesus' body is the same body, but it's transformed. And can I take this even further? I mean, when we get this stuff, it's just, it's, it, it, it's mind-boggling. But that God is going to do 
for the entire cosmos what we see him doing in Jesus on Easter. A new heaven and a new earth. And that's our hope. And it's awesome. And is your vision today for what God is doing in you and in the world this awesome? Read Romans 8 today. We'll talk about, you'll, you'll read how all creation is groaning. All creation and we too who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we too are groaning. And what is it that we're groaning for? We're groaning, not just for the redemption of our souls, as if someday we're going to just kind of be these souls that are just floating around and floating in the crowds and in the clouds and playing our harp. We're going to have bodies, redeemed, glorified bodies, and we're going to live in a redeemed new heavens and new earth. That's where it's all going, and it's going to be forever. I remember when Gabe was five years old. This is when I was a high school pastor, and I took him on one of my retreats. And I always felt lonely anytime I had to do retreats. I know it sounds weird, but I'd be away from my family. And, and so this was the first year I took Gabe He's just a little five-year-old little guy, and I remember it was the last night, and I'm all nervous as I'm walking to the retreat center because I'm going to give a talk now to 120 high school students, and it's just, the night's just beautiful. I mean, I got Gabe in my, my hand, and we're walking up this beautiful path. There's probably three feet of snow on the ground. Snow's covering all the trees. The sky is completely clear. The moon was brilliant. The stars were um, also in full display. And we're walking. And as we're walking, you don't expect this to come from a five-year-old. But he asked me, Dad, why does God allow people to die? I don't remember my answer. I hope it was a good one. But I know his next question was, because now all of a sudden this reality of death is starting to dawn on just this little five-year-old. You want him to be spared of that until later in life. But they start asking at that age. And so his next question was, Dad, only old people die, right? And again, I had to answer that question. But he didn't stop there. And this got to the heart of his fear in that moment. Dad, you're not going to die for a long time, are you? Of course, my answer is, I don't know, Gabe. That could happen tonight. could happen tomorrow. could happen next week. But here's what I can tell my son, because this is what we know, and this is what you hopefully know, 
is it's resurrection means so much more than we're going to just live forever. But it means that God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth and a new Eden. And I even think that where I'm standing right now is the place where I'm going to live forever. Minus the curse, minus sin, minus death in a glorified body. That's the hope. And so I thought about Josh Buck this week, and I don't even know if Josh is here, but, you know, sometimes I think when I'm up here and, you know, we love to just open up response to people and get on your knees, come up. Every time I do that, I have Josh in the back of my head because I think that guy's in a, he's in a wheelchair and he can't do it. And Josh, I see you back there right now, and I think of that statement when you said one of the hardest things you have is that you can't hold your kids. Josh, I can't wait to be there on that day. I got to believe the first thing you're going to do is fall out of that wheelchair at Jesus' feet, and the next thing is you're going to just be dancing in a glorified body. There's this guy, Scotty, who comes to our church on Saturday nights, and some of you might know him. But Scotty has cerebral palsy. And this guy loves Jesus so much. I'm telling you, I love how this community sings, but no one sings a more joyful or makes a more joyful noise to the Lord than Scotty. In fact, last night, here he is, um, in response to the message, he comes up and, and he wants to just wash in the water because he wants Jesus so much. And I'm seeing him just dip his hand in here and putting this water on his face and his heart because he loves Jesus. And then afterward, he comes up to me and God gives me a lot of grace to understand what he says to me. And he says, Rod, I just... I don't know if Jesus is first place in my life, but I want him to be. And all I can say to Scotty is, Scotty, if anyone in this whole community has Jesus first, it's you. I can't wait to be to that day and see the glorified body that Scotty's going to get. It's our hope. And see, this idea of first fruits is more than just a promise of what is to come, but there's a sense in which resurrection is right now. It's this already not yet reality that's happening right now in every blood bought follower of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 says it we have the first fruits of the Spirit, and this is said in the context of Paul talking about resurrection because resurrection has already begun it's happening in us right now the future has been brought into the present and as Paul says anyone who's in Christ is a new creation that's right now the old is gone the new has come and so this is who we are we are a people experiencing 
and participating in the new creation. And you know what? This is more than what we are before God and to each other. But this is what we are to the world. And I want to say something right now. We don't just tell people about resurrection. We show them. So I think the question then becomes, who is this for? Well, I think our text answers this question. This text and other texts about the resurrection let us know that Jesus appears first to women. Now I want to ask, is this coincidence? Because what's very interesting is this. A woman in that day couldn't even be a witness in court. It was a very chauvinistic world. And therefore, her defense held no weight. Which tells me, these guys aren't making this story up. Because why would they say women were the first witnesses? But even more than that, the world might be chauvinistic, but I'll tell you right now, God isn't. God doesn't care about that because you're not a chauvinist. I'll take that to creation. And I think as creation is building more and more and more momentum, the pinnacle, the final act of creation is woman. And every man here can attest to the truth. That is God's greatest act in creation. Isn't it, guys? Amen. And now when it comes to Jesus and this amazing reality of redemption that God is doing through Jesus, God tells women first. First at Jesus' birth, the, 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 the word of gospel comes first to Mary and then to Elizabeth. And then at Jesus' crucifixion, uh, as Jesus is carrying the cross, the first people he talks to and makes sense of this day is to women. And now at Jesus' resurrection, the first people to whom Jesus appears, it's women. Now you ask, where am I going with this? Well, in Hebrews 11, verse 35, it says this, women received their dead back. And I think to myself, why, is it, why does it say women? Why doesn't you say people? Well, when you read the scriptures, you'll find other than one time, every other time there's a resurrection, it's to women. So I ask this question then, is this coincidence? I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. Because in biblical times, women were powerless they were oftentimes treated like property. And here's why I think this is no coincidence. Because when it comes to the gospel, the first to understand the gospel and the first to receive the gospel are not the strong, are not the self-sufficient, are not the powerful. It's always the powerless, the weak, and the poor. They're always first. And you ask, why is this? Well, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel simply is the power of God to redeem and resurrect. How was that gospel offered to the world? The gospel is offered to the world through one who lays aside his power, 
the all-powerful God who spoke the universe into existence, lays aside all his authority and becomes powerless. And that's how the gospel is offered. And then you look at how the gospel is received. The gospel is received only, only by those who are willing to give up power, who are willing to surrender, who are willing to say, I give up control. And here's the deal. People who run things, people who have power, have difficulty of letting go of power and control. And that's why these people, when they try to become spiritual, rather than turning to God and his gospel, oftentimes they turn to religion. They turn to the rules and the three steps and the right doctrines because it still gives them a sense of I have power and I have control because I can control God if I believe the right things and if I do the right things because then if I do all that and believe all that, then God has to do all this. I can control him. But the Bible says this. Women received their dead back to them because it's the powerless, it's the marginalized, it's those who know their need. If you don't know your need, you're never going to know the gospel. You're never going to understand it. And you're never going to receive it. Look at verse 9. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Now, what do we have in Mary Magdalene? I mean, this is not just a woman, but this is a woman with a past. This is a woman with a reputation. This is a woman of the night. This is a woman who wears a scarlet letter, but this is a woman who knows her need, and resurrection is first for Mary and the Marys of the world. Look at verse 7. I know you guys are like, well, what about us? (laughs) But go tell his disciples He is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you'll see him just as he told you. Remember the last time Jesus saw these guys? What were they doing? They were all running away. They were all deserting Jesus. So Jesus now says, go tell those backstabbing cowards that if they show up, they're going to get the biggest spanking of their life and that they better beg and beg profusely and I just, I just might accept and forgive them. No, this isn't what Jesus says because Jesus doesn't operate the way you and I operate. And if there's one thing that I want people to know this morning, it's the way of Jesus. And it's this. Jesus 
loves us. Jesus accepts us first to make it possible for us to repent. In fact, I love Matthew's account because I think this account is more descriptive. I think Matthew's account is more exactly what Jesus said through the angel. And this is what it says in Matthew's account. It says, go tell my brothers. My brothers. These guys that failed me, these guys that deserted me, go tell my brothers. Libby and I, before we had kids, we used to house sit. And I remember this one house, we, we, we enjoyed it so much. Not the house, but the family, um, because sometimes it involved babysitting. And um, this family had a four-year-old kid that we'd watch. His, his name was Evan, and we didn't have kids yet. And it just it made me so excited to have, have kids. And I remember one of the things that I did every night before he went to bed is I would uh, put him in his crib-like bed and... I would just pray over him and sing over him. And, I mean, I don't have a good voice. It's horrible, but a four-year-old doesn't know that, okay? <laughs> and I would just watch him enter into this deep rest. Well, towards the end, one night I was doing this, and I got to that point where I thought he was sleeping, and then I just kind of said to him, Go to sleep, my brother. And the moment I said that, his eyes just went like this. I'm like, shoot. I woke him up. And then he yells out, he called me brother. <laughs> and the whole next day, he's going around telling Libby and his other brothers and sisters, he called me brother. <laughs> it's like he didn't have a category for this guy that was three times bigger than him and taking care of him that he would be brother to him. That's Jesus. He calls us brother. Hebrews 2 verse 13 says, he's not ashamed to call us brother. And look at the context in which, which he's calling his disciples brother. They've just failed him. They've just deserted him. In our moments of greatest failure, he's still not ashamed to call you and I brother. then there's these two words, and these two words just moved me this week, and Peter. Because here is the biggest screw-up, here is the biggest failure of them all, and you can almost imagine the scene, the disciples still not hearing the news of the resurrection, kind of sitting around, despairing, not knowing what to do next. All of a sudden, Mary Magdalene comes running in, and she says, I saw him. He's alive. And after they're all like, what? you got to be kidding. Yes, I saw him. He's alive. And not only this, but he's on his way to Galilee, and he told me to tell you he wants to meet with you. And you can almost just feel Peter's heart just completely sink. Like, not only did I blow it with Jesus, but I blew it with all of this. And you can almost hear him say, Hey guys, 
you guys go. This can't be for me. Not after what I've done. But Peter hears his name. And Jesus singles him out. Peter, you screwed up. I believe in you. I accept you, Peter. I love you, Peter. I forgive you, Peter. And I know that there are people in this room right now who feel like they've made a complete mess of their life. I know that there are people in this room right now who feel like they're failures, like they've failed their parents, like they've failed their siblings, like they've failed their friends, like they've failed maybe their spouse, maybe that they've failed their children, or maybe even more than that, you feel like you've failed God. But do you see the heart of Jesus? Because this is the heart of the gospel. It always, always singles us out, not to spank us, not to shame us, but in our moment or season of greatest failure to say, Peter, Rod, I believe in you. I love you. I accept you. I forgive you. Because the gospel tells us that even before you and I repent, God is already singling us out. He's already calling us by name. He's already calling us brother. Because this is the gospel. It's all about God and his grace. We can't earn it. It's not about who we are or what we have done. It's all about who he is and what he has done. And so the resurrection, this awesome reality, is for anybody. And then look at Peter. I mean, consider him. What a picture of resurrection. His life is resurrected. His place with Jesus is resurrected. He ends up becoming the biggest leader in the Jesus movement. And I love what Tim Keller says because he says this. He says he becomes the biggest leader, not in spite of his failure, but because of his failure. Now, where on earth is anybody going to treat failure that way? Because what you have with Peter is this. Because his screw-up is the biggest his repentance will be the deepest, and his grasp of grace will be the greatest. Because the one who's forgiven much is the one who loves much. And so the biggest screw-ups who become the biggest repenters end up being the best lovers. They end up becoming the best counselors, the best fathers, the best mothers, the best husbands, the best wives, the best of friends the best leaders. But some of you are here today and you just can't admit your failure. And I'll tell you why you can't do it. It's for one reason. It's because of pride. And so therefore, you project 
or you blame everybody else. You say, wow, if you had my mother or my father, or if you had this, this, and this happen to you. And so we end up doing everything that we can to avoid saying, I failed. I failed. I'm a Peter. And therefore, we do everything we can to avoid repenting. And why is this? Because acknowledging personal failure and then repenting for that failure always feels like a death. And the reason it feels like a death is because it is a death. And we avoid death like the plague because in the end, it feels like an end. But in light of Easter, death is only the beginning. And so here's the question I have. Has resurrection happened in your life? Are you experiencing resurrection right now? Can you testify to it? Can people look at your life and say, he or she isn't perfect, but my goodness, there's an explosion of change, of Christ-likeness. Now, I have to believe there are people here today who so badly want God to resurrect your life, maybe a relationship. Some of you want God to resurrect your joy. Some of you want God to resurrect your past. Some of you want God to resurrect your present. But here's the deal. Before any resurrection is what? Death. Before any little resurrection, there are little deaths. Before any big resurrection, there are big, huge deaths. And so today, I'm not calling you on Easter Sunday to resurrection. I'm calling you to die. I'm calling you to death. And let me ask it in light of your failures. Where are you going to place them? Where are you going to bring them? Where are you going to throw them? Look at Mary. Look at Peter. If you bring your failures to the cross and you let your failure drive you deeper into the gospel, I promise you it will result in resurrection. But even more than failure, where are you going to throw your life? See, the gospel isn't just some passion play that we watch. It's not just some propositions that we insert in our brain. I'm not saying it's less than that, but it's tons, tons more than that. Because the gospel is something in which we ourselves are called to participate. Where Christ's death becomes our death. And therefore, Christ's resurrection becomes our resurrection. And you can go to church your whole life. And you can hear sermon after sermon. But if you never, ever get rid of the pride and participate with all your being in this gospel, there will be no resurrection. Resurrection.
But don't you know, as Paul says in Romans 6, that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus, not just that, but what that represents, that all of us who were immersed into Christ Jesus, we were immersed into his death, we were therefore buried with him, and through this immersion into death, in order that just as Christ then was raised from the dead, we too may live right now a new life. I think one of the most powerful pictures of resurrection in the, body, in the Bible is in the accounts of Elijah and Elisha. And we looked at this about two years ago. But I don't remember if you remember when Elijah is about ready to go away. I don't understand all that, but his disciple Elisha is there, and he takes his mantle and places it on Elisha, and Elisha in that moment is just like, oh, this thing is heavy. How can I ever fill Elijah's shoes? And so as a desperate man, he says, I need a double anointing of whatever you have, a double anointing of the Spirit. And then when you read these stories about Elijah and Elisha, you see that there are seven miracles recorded in the life of Elijah. And then there are 13 miracles recorded in the life of Elijah. And in light of this double anointing, you're just like, oh, why can't it be 14? But long then after Elisha is dead, there's this awesome story where they just take this dead corpse and they throw it into Elisha's tomb. And what happens? Life. An explosion of life, resurrection life. There's number 14. But Elisha's tomb is only a foretaste of Jesus' tomb. It's the tomb that all creation has been groaning. It's the tomb that brings about the great reversal in our universe. It's the tomb that crushes the curse. It crushes the power of sin. It crushes the head of Satan. It crushes death itself. Have you thrown your life there? And some of you are saying, yeah, of course I've thrown my life into Jesus. And I just want to say, have you really? Has your life been raised from the dead? Have you been set free from fear and from shame and from guilt? Is new creation happening in you right now? Or as C.S. Lewis put it, are you experiencing death working itself backward right now in your life? You want Easter? Of course you do. We all want it. We all long for it. We all long for resurrection. Here's how you can have it today. Number one, lay aside the pride and become like Mary and Peter and have the courage to acknowledge your desperate need for him. And if you're not there right now, I'll take that one step further. Have the courage to say, God, then you show me my need. 
and you do whatever you need to do in my life and you take away whatever you need to take away and you bring into my life whatever you need to bring into my life to show me how desperate I am for you. And then number two, surrender. And you have nothing to offer God except for yourself and so throw yourself Throw your entire self, your entire life into the tomb of Jesus and I promise you there would be an explosion of resurrection life. I just have the sense there's at least one person who wants to do this for the first time today. And so I want you, or if there are more of you, to pray this prayer with me. Let's pray. Jesus, I am so tired of living for myself. And Jesus, today I admit that I'm weaker and that I'm more sinful than I ever before believed. But Jesus, I also know today that through you and what you did for me on the cross and in your resurrection that I am more loved and I am more accepted and I am more forgiven than I could ever dream. And I thank you today, Jesus, for paying my debt and for bearing my punishment and for offering to me forgiveness. And so today, Jesus, I turn from myself, I turn from my sin, and I throw myself, all of me, into all of you. Raise my life from the dead.